Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Easter begins in the dark with people who don't want to be there. And so if you're a little uneasy about being here this morning, you are in good company as we come to John chapter 20. John writes, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Uh, Each of our gospel authors, the four gospels, um, they tell us the story of the resurrection. There's things that they each want to highlight for us to learn about this uh, incredible event. But they're all united in this, that it was uh, women that came to the tomb early. They came on Sunday, they found it empty, and they all highlight the role of Mary Magdalene coming first to the tomb. Why was she there? She's not there for Easter. She's not there for the resurrection. She is there to complete the burial process of her dear friend Jesus because that process had been rushed and hurried and cut short. That They had brought him and rushed him down from the cross to avoid the scandal of um, a dead body hanging around on God's holy Sabbath day. It's actually a chilling, just religious scrupulosity in that. Heaven forbid, no, heaven forbid you crucified the Lord and laid him in a tomb. Mary's terrified. She's probably in a state of shock. She's actually probably free to go to the tomb where the disciples are worried they too will be arrested by the soldiers. She has seen horror incarnate because they gathered around the cross and they heard the very word of God say it is finished and go silent. John 20 is what comes next. And it begins in the dark with people who don't want to be there. We'll see here in John 20 the fullness of that empty tomb and the risen one that they see again. First, the fullness of the empty tomb. Uh, The gospel of John shines this spotlight on Mary, Mary Magdalene, as she makes her way to the tomb. Um, Unlike the other gospels, John doesn't introduce Mary. The first time we see Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of John is at the cross. She appears seemingly out of nowhere in the darkness of the cross, and now she goes from darkness to darkness while it was still dark because she's going to complete this process with her friend. And when she arrives, Jesus is no longer there. The stone is rolled away, and the running begins. John, in his gospel, has walked us meticulously, step by step, word by word, blow by blow, through the last week of Jesus' life. A third of the entire gospel of John is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. He's gone methodically, but now everything speeds up. Everybody's running. Mary runs back to tell Peter and John. Peter and John take off running as well. Uh, I might pause to say even, you you do know that the Bible can be funny. 
Do you know this? This is funny. I mean, John, who's written this gospel, takes a moment just to kind of sideswipe his buddy Peter, the slow one. He's like, we took off running, I beat him. <laughs> slow Rocky. Oh, Peter, wasn't that fast. Um, don't miss this, though. John does say, but he didn't go in. Peter might have gotten there second, but he was first in. First into the darkness. Um, I will say, I think is a... Ezra Shadricks is one of our uh, youth here at the church, and on a routine basis, at the end of one of our services, Ezra will go running out the door and up the hill, and occasionally there are little, you know, some of the younger kids running after him, and I think of this scene every week, and I'm like, Ezra, you are a beloved disciple of the Lord, and he just takes off running, and Peter runs, and he gets there second, but he plunges in, and then they go, what in the world has happened? It's a confusing sight, a confounding sight. John says that they maybe start to have that seed of faith start to sprout. Oh, yeah, he said some things. Still murky. Still murky. I want to look at what they see in the empty tomb. Because we always talk about the tomb being empty, but it's not. It's full. And from the fullness of the empty tomb, what we see in there actually bears witness to the resurrection of Jesus. See, the first thing they see when they look into the empty tomb, they look, and it would have been, they would have had to stoop down. It's, you know, this hollowed out thing. And there would have been a stone, little, little almost like a table, a ledge, kind of like one of these things you would see out in the garden. And they would have laid Jesus on it. They would expect to see that. No, they go in, and what they see are that his grave clothes, uh, well, they've been folded over there. And the napkin, the, the, the cloth over his face, it's been neatly folded and laid there as well. Um, this is not like a college dorm room <laughs> where the laundry's all over the place. But this leftover laundry tells a story, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Jesus is ministry is bookended by laundry. All the way back in Luke chapter 2, when he was born, what's it say? She, the Virgin Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes, grave clothes. And she laid him in a manger, which would have been a stone trough. Do you see the symmetry? In the same way, when our Lord dies on the cross... They take him down, and once again, they wrap him in swaddling cloths, and they lay him not in a manger, but they lay him out on stone in a tomb. The powerful sign here is that Jesus has left all those grave clothes finally. He doesn't need them anymore. He's never going to wear them again. St. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no dominion over him. There's no need to hold on to the laundry. He doesn't need it. He's done with it. Look what else they see. John chapter 20, verse 11, says that Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. I'm like, way to be chivalrous, Peter and John. Okay. Anyways, Mary is left weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look in, and it's not empty. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, 
so Jesus, where he had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. These two angels. What's John trying to tell us? Why the detail? Why not just two angels? Why two angels, one at the head, one at the feet? I think he's trying to give us a picture. He's trying to give us an iconic image rooted in the Old Testament to bear witness to what Jesus has accomplished in his death and mighty resurrection. You see, in the Old Testament, God gave specific, detailed instructions about worship. And at the heart of that worship in the Old Testament was first the tabernacle and later the temple. And in the center of that was the Holy of Holies. And the center of that was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark was a mercy seat, a mercy seat. And that was the place of atonement. That's where sacrifice was made for sin. That was the place of forgiveness. That was the very seat of God's divine glory as he dwelled with his people. Exodus chapter 25 says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold and you shall make two cherubim of gold on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. The word for mercy seat is used twice later in the New Testament, once in Hebrews chapter 9, once in Romans chapter 3. St. Paul writes this in Romans 3, For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which is a big word that just means mercy seat. That when God sent his son, he sent the mercy seat, the place of atonement and forgiveness and glory where God would dwell with his people. We have here in the empty tomb the fullness of the mercy seat of the world. The great sacrifice had been made. It's been received. And they want us to see here that this is where Christ made the once-for-all sacrifice of himself, his perfect oblation for perfect remission of sins, the mercy seat of the world and the empty tomb. It's beautiful. And with that, we get a little context just to go, okay, now we can meet the risen Jesus. He doesn't need these laundry. He's never going to need them again. And he's done what he came to do. He came and provided the sacrifice for sin. He came as the very glory of God. He came as God with us, the mercy seat of the world in the empty tomb. So now let's talk about the risen one, Jesus. Because Mary Magdalene has this odd conversation with the angels, and she turns and she sees the risen Jesus. And we're ready for her to run and embrace him. But she doesn't. The details are curious. It says she didn't know it was him. She thought he was the gardener. What in the world is going on? What's John trying to teach us? What's John trying to show us? Well, first, let's just talk for a moment about the form of the risen Jesus. Jesus. 
the resurrected Lord. Because in a very real sense, the astonishing claim of Easter is that everything that went into the tomb came out of the tomb, but what came out of the tomb was not the same as what went into the tomb. Something had happened. Something glorious had occurred. The early church used the image of a chrysalis where a caterpillar would go in and grow and be changed and emerge in beauty and glory. Something has happened in the Lord such that uh, he's changed. They don't recognize him immediately. Uh, He's bodily resurrected. It's physical, but it's almost more than physical. I mean, think about it. When he encounters his disciples, he talks with them. He eats with them. Uh, One guy, he's like, if you need to touch me, go ahead. And then he goes through walls. What is this resurrected form? No wonder she didn't recognize him. And we'll come back to this. I think part of what John is trying to tell us in his gospel is that we don't primarily relate now to the risen Lord by sight, by what we see. Faith operates differently. We will see him. We will see him face to face. But there's a lesson there, and we'll come to it in just a moment, where John is trying to say there's something more important than mere sight as we think about the risen Lord. But I think there's something theological going on here. What actually got me kind of nerding out this week was supposing he was the gardener. Hmm. Listen, the Gospel of John takes uh, the most formative stories of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, and it weaves them together and uses them as a frame for the entire story of Jesus. It's a literary masterpiece. Uh, John's gospel is built around seven signs of glory, seven ways that Jesus reveals himself. And most have said that those seven signs, they're not exact, but it's a similar frame to the seven days of creation. It's a Genesis account. In fact, John's gospel begins with a hymn of praise of creation, a poem about creation. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning, Genesis. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. The pinnacle of that hymn is verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, beginning to correspond to the very creation of humanity in Genesis. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. I actually think that this Genesis story, the account of creation, gives a sequence behind this gospel. It helps us make sense of even Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and all that has come before uh, Easter Sunday. Here's what I mean. On the sixth day of creation, God creates us. God creates humans. And on the sixth day of the week, well, that's Good Friday and Holy Week. And what does Pilate say on Good Friday after Jesus has been crowned and scourged? Behold the man. Look at humanity. Look at God incarnate. This is the pinnacle of creation. And think about it. After God creates man in his own image, it's the, it's the pinnacle of creation. And then after the sixth day, what's it say in Genesis? 
God was finished. His work was finished and he rested. Good Friday, what does Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. And then he rests. He goes to his Sabbath rest. It is finished. The creator and the creation have come together in the incarnate Lord. And now what comes after Sabbath rest? What comes after the seventh day? What's the eighth day of new creation? It's the great, unimagined, beautiful, glorious work of God of new creation. And here in the midst of this resurrection account, Mary supposes him to be the gardener. And they are in a garden. Um, We had some law school students here at the first service. (laughs) And I was like, I don't think you have to make much more of a case that Genesis is undergirding this story than to go, we're in a garden, y'all. Do you remember the original context of creation? A garden. Do you remember, remember the original charter of humanity? What it meant to be uh, a very human. It says Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to keep it. To be in the garden, supposing he was the gardener. That first story of the first gardener, Adam, ends in tragedy and disobedience. Because he plucks from the tree of life and brings death to everything. This gardener, he goes to the tree, experiences death, and brings life to everyone. And now he appears again, supposing him to be the gardener. Friends, this is a new creation story of resurrection. This is new Adam, renewed Adam, the resurrected Jesus showing who we were always supposed to be, who we should have been, and who we yet will be. Because we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But what else is John teaching us here? I, I, do, think that, I do think that he is actually kind of diminishing the role of sight for how we relate to Jesus by Mary not recognizing the Lord. Um, they even talk for a while. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Do you think there's a twinkle in his eye? I don't know. Supposing him to be the gardener, da 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 Then Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary recognizes the Lord when he calls her name. Mary. And John has been preparing us for this moment throughout the entire gospel. John chapter 10, verse 3. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, Mary. John 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, Mary. It's through hearing. It's through hearing God call her name that she comes to faith, not by seeing. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said that ears are the only organs of the Christian because we hear the word of God and we hear the gospel preached and then we can respond by faith. God calls us by name, we hear it, and we respond, Mary. John doesn't just want us to know that Mary saw him, that he called Mary's name, but that he could relate to her by faith and so can we. 
And so Jesus sends her back to tell the disciples all that she has seen. And by the way, Mary Magdalene might be the least likely messenger ever. If you're going to make up a story, friends, this is not how you would do it. You would get an F on your paper. If there was a conspiracy, this isn't how it would work. No one would have dreamed in the first century of giving the starring role the key eyewitness, making that person a woman. Let alone Mary Magdalene. There were already attempts to smear her reputation being spread around. And also remember that people in the first centuries, uh, they weren't fools. I think we sometimes look back and think, well, they thought Jesus was raised from the dead because they just didn't know that dead people stay dead. Like, friends, that's not a modern scientific advancement (laughs) to know that dead people stay dead. I I would even contend that in the first century, there was a much better awareness of this than even we have because we have funeral services and all these things that kind of can take care of this for us. You didn't have that. That's why Mary's going to finish the burial process. They knew that dead people stayed dead. That is not a modern revelation. No, and you certainly wouldn't build a conspiracy story on the eyewitness testimony of an unreliable witness, which tells me a few things. First, uh, God's ways are not our ways. And the values of his kingdom will often confront us, will turn our values upside down and inside out, because, of course, the testimony of a woman should be valid. (laughs) That's part of the point here. He's raising the dignity of women by having Mary Magdalene in this starring role. Second, the fact that this is the least likely messenger certainly makes it less likely that the early church made this up. The unlikelihood adds plausibility and evidence to the entire report that Jesus really had been raised from the dead. I mean, friends, we're talking about a historical event. We have to reckon with the shocking claim that the man that was talking to Mary was dead, and then he wasn't, and now he isn't. He was put in a tomb, but he rose from the dead, made himself known to Mary, made himself known to the disciples, makes himself known to us today because he's alive. And John would have us know that the main way he speaks to us and calls our name is through the scriptures, through the sacrament, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the church. God calls our name so that we can respond by faith. And I I understand if you find this hard to believe. I really do. I mean, if you think about it, I mentioned the swaddling clothes at his birth. I mean, Jesus' ministry and life, it's just bookended by miracles. The virgin birth, the empty tomb, the virgin's womb, an empty tomb. One is said that Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance and left through a door marked no exit. Our church, St. Thomas, is actually named after one of the disciples who didn't believe at first either. Thomas doubted the testimony of Mary Magdalene. He said, I need to see for myself. 
I have questions. I need a follow-up conversation, another consultation. And you might need that because you might have questions and doubts and need a conversation or a consultation. Any of our team is available to talk with you further. Jesus doesn't shame Thomas for his doubts. He doesn't say they're misplaced. He said, that's fine. If you've got doubts, if you've got questions, bring them. If you need to touch, touch. That's fine. Whatever you need. He meets Thomas with grace. He meets Thomas with himself. And Thomas responds, not with careful inquiry. Oh, he hits his knees, my Lord and my God. It's this Easter moment for the one who used to be known as Doubting Thomas. He goes off to do great missionary work around the world. I mean, all of these apostles, all of these disciples, all of these women, they go on to spread the news of Jesus. The likelihood that the church would have spread and grown and flourished, built on a lie, that takes more faith to believe in than to believe in the resurrection. One scholar has put it this way. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong, no one would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. Again, dead people tend to stay dead. That's how that works. We know that. Second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. You've got to respond to it. Today, may we gather around the risen Jesus in worship. Like Thomas declaring, my Lord and my God, may we follow in the footsteps of Mary Magdalene to go and tell others, we have seen the Lord. Here is who he is. Here is what he has done. I want to close this morning uh, by swiping someone else's sermon. In the 4th century, St. John Chrysostom preached an Easter homily. Um, Our Orthodox uh, cousins still use this as the sermon on every uh, Pascha, every Easter. Um, It's a better sermon than the one I just gave, um, granted. He builds on the words of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and here's what he says. I want to close with this this morning. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. To him be glory and dominion and honor unto the ages of ages. Amen.